chapter 3 this morning. And we're going to try to get through the entire chapter. It was really kind of struggle for me to figure out how much I wanted to teach, and I just finally came up with, we're just going to try to do the whole thing, and, and I think it kind of flows together, and, and um, just wanted to, to tackle it all this morning. So, as you know, this letter that Paul writes uh, to the church at Corinth, it, it comes as a result of the character assassination that was being leveled against Paul. We, we talked about it at great length. If, if you haven't been here at all, I encourage you to pick up uh, the CDs, uh, catch yourself up to speed there. But the false teachers had, had come into the church and had turned this church that Paul had planted with his own uh, sweat, his own tears, his own blood, if you will. They, they turned this church against Paul. And they questioned, these false teachers, they, they began to question Paul's motives, Paul's methods, and Paul's ministry. And we've seen throughout the first few chapters that Paul is really giving a defense against these false accusations. Our text this morning begins with Paul continuing to defend his ministry. In our study today, I want us to to notice, I want us to see five contrasts. It was a very common writing practice of the day, certainly in the Bible, if you look in, in the book of Proverbs, to contrast something. You know, the godly versus the ungodly, the flesh versus the spirit. And it's a very common writing style of Paul to compare and to contrast things. And we're going to see five of those this morning, five contrasts in our text. If you're a note taker, first of all, in verses 1 through 3, we're going to see Paul contrasting really his that his credentials were written on hearts, not on paper. That his credentials, that is, the validation of his ministry was written on people's hearts, not on some piece of paper. Secondly, we're going to see that our sufficiency is in Christ, and that it's his sufficiency, not our ability. That's in verses 4 through 6. And secondly, or thirdly, I should say, we're going to see that it's lasting glory, not fading glory, verses 7 through 13. Fourth, we're going to see that it's open access, not closed doors, verses 14 through 16. And then finally, 17 and 18, it's freedom, not bondage. So, first of all, verses 1 through 3, Paul's credentials were written on hearts, not on paper. Read those verses with me. Do we begin again to commend ourselves? Or do we need, as some others, epistles of commendation to you or letters of commendation from you? You are our epistle, written in our hearts, known and read by all men. Clearly, you are an epistle of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, but by the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh, that is, of the heart. And so first of all, Paul combats another accusation that had been leveled against him in that they said Paul doesn't have letters of recommendation. Paul doesn't have any references. Anybody that says, Yeah, this is this is God's man, this is a good guy, this is a guy you ought to listen to. Because you see, in that time they didn't have 
cell phones. They didn't have email, of course. You guys know that. And so when these traveling evangelists and pastors would come into a town, they would typically bring letters of recommendation from other churches, from other leaders. They would say, yeah, this guy is a good guy. You ought to listen to him. He's, he's, um, you know, he, he's anointed by the Lord, um, what have you. But Paul, when he came to Corinth, he didn't have those. And the reason that Paul didn't have those is pretty simple, and that's because Paul was planning a church there. What good would those letters have done him? What's he going to do, hand these letters from the church to people that don't even know the Lord? It's not going to mean anything to them. But now later, these false teachers are coming in. They're just bringing doubt, and they're saying, look, Paul didn't even have letters when he came here. Paul, Paul didn't have the references. Paul doesn't have the the um, you know the the names behind him that that we have, and they were bringing doubt into the people's mind. And and of course, um, Paul just tells them, "Look, do, do I really need to have letters among you? Isn't the fact that you guys came to know Jesus?" Isn't the the fact that you guys are now a church that was planted under my ministry, isn't that proof enough of my calling? Isn't that enough validation of what God is doing through me? You guys are the validation of my ministry, is what Paul is saying. And it's because Paul never wanted the focus to be on him anyway. Paul could have very easily brought all kinds of references. Paul could have very easily brought to them the pedigree that he had and and the degrees that he had, you know, the education that he had. But he didn't do that because he didn't want the focus to be on him. He wanted it to be on Jesus. And the church at Corinth had begun to focus on the wrong things. Paul was trying to tell them it wasn't about who he knew or what school he had been to. Or how many degrees that he had. That's that's what the world focuses on. That's what the world wants to see. But God's not impressed with any of those things. God wants to see fruit in people's lives. That's what God is looking for. He doesn't care about degrees or references. Not that any of those things are wrong. Because Paul would give letters of recommendation to a lot of people. In fact, if you look through the epistles... Very often at the end of the epistles, Paul would kind of reference people, right? He would say this guy and that guy, and, and he, was, he was giving them letters of recommendation. In fact, the entire uh, book of Philemon is a letter of recommendation. But what Paul is saying is, I don't need that. That's not what validates my ministry, is these things. You guys shouldn't be saying after three years, of knowing me and seeing my ministry, you shouldn't be saying, well, where's your letters of recommendation? That's crazy. The church had really begun to focus on the wrong things. And, you know, I think this applies to us in a very real sense, and that it's very easy for us to focus on things that really don't matter. Not only in the church. I mean, that happens a lot. I think that in the church, uh, people focus on things that don't matter all the time. I think that, you know what people look for in a pastor and what is required of a pastor. A lot of times people focus on the wrong things. They focus on his education rather than, than on his, his anointing or, or on his 
um, the fruit of his ministry and on the calling. They, they focus on the wrong things. But I think beyond that, we focus on the wrong things even in our personal lives. Certainly in our personal lives. We focus on material things. It, you know, what kind of clothes we wear, what kind of cars we drive, what kind of houses we live in, how big is our bank account, what's our career. You know, those are the things that we focus on. And Peter tells us in his second epistle, those things are going to melt away with a fervent heat. But that that's what we tend to focus on. You know, how we're dressed. You know, and that's not really an issue here at our church, you know, so much as, you know, we don't have a lot of suits and ties going on here. But, you know, people tend to, to focus on that. You know, how do, how do they look? How, how do they dress? What kind of clothes are they wearing? Or the car that you drive or the house that you live in. You know, how much money and all these things, we focus on those things and we use those as a test for success in life. You know, guys get together and the first thing they ask each other is, you know, well, what do you do for a living? And and if you don't have some some really, you know, illustrious career, then, oh, well, you know, that's that's not too cool. Or, or guys like, well, I'm just, you know, and then fill in the blank as if it really matters. And we focus on, on the wrong things. Uh, in the church, I think that there's, there's a real focus on signs and wonders. You know, focusing on um, the outward things rather than on the heart issues. Uh, Jesus said that the signs and wonders would follow the believer. But he never said that they should be the focus or the thrust of a ministry. But that's what the church focuses on. You know, oh man, we went to the service and and somebody got healed, or you know, we went to this service and and people were laid out everywhere, slain in the spirit, or we went to the service and you hear people say, well, the spirit was really moving that day. Well, what does that mean? The spirit was really moving, as if if there's emotional things going on, that means the spirit's moving. But if it's just a you know time of worship and opening the word and you didn't feel anything emotionally, then, oh, well, the Spirit really wasn't moving today. As if we and our emotions are the test for whether or not God is moving. That's crazy. Because our emotions, you guys, are are changing. They're fleeting. They have nothing to do with what the Spirit's doing. I mean, you know, you can come in here and just have the absolute wrong attitude about things and totally miss out on what the Spirit's doing. And you can walk away thinking, well, the Spirit wasn't moving. Well, He was on everybody else's heart, but maybe not on yours. So you can't use your emotions, your attitudes, to determine whether God is moving or not, but that's what we do. We focus on the outward. We look to see, was there a miracle? Was there a sign? Was there, you know, this happening? And that should never be our focus. Now, we should never throw them out either. Shouldn't say, well, those don't exist anymore. That doesn't happen anymore. God's not moving in that way anymore. That shouldn't be the other extreme, but we sure, certainly shouldn't be over here just totally focused on those things. Jesus said they would follow the believer. He didn't say they would be the thrust of the believer's life. And it's really sad when when the church begins to focus on the wrong things. And that's what was happening in Corinth. Paul says, look, I just want you to focus on Jesus. Don't focus on me. Don't worry about me. Are you loving Jesus? 
Are you guys now aware of your need for Him? Are you now aware of the Word of God in your lives and, and all these things? And that's what's important. Don't worry about my recommendations or, or what these false teachers are saying about me. Forget about all that stuff. Just focus on Christ. In verse 2, I want you guys to notice that the validation of real ministry is the fruit in people's lives. See what he says there? You are our epistle, written in our hearts, known and read by all men. The people who attended the church, the people who were saved under Paul's ministry, the people that were discipled under Paul's ministry, they were his real letters of recommendation. They were the ones that would say, yeah, this is, this is real ministry. This guy's called. They proved the validity of Paul's ministry and his calling. He says that it was written in our hearts. You guys were written in our hearts, Paul says. The people of Corinth were written in a figurative sense upon the, on the heart of Paul. And you guys, that is what true ministry is all about. True ministry is about people. It's about having God's people on your heart. You remember the priests in the book of Exodus, when the priesthood was introduced, they, they would wear, they were told to wear that ephod that would go over their heart, and there were 12 stones upon the ephod, each one representing a different tribe of Israel. And it was to show that the priest was to have the people of God on his heart. And that's what ministry is, you guys. Ministry, whatever you're doing, whether you're teaching the Word of God, whether you're helping in Sunday school, or, you know, taking care of babies in the nursery, or handing out bulletins at the door, or on the worship team, whatever it is that we're doing for the Lord, you guys, it ought to be, it better be about the people. It's got to be that the people are on your heart, that you love people. If we don't love people, we have no business being in ministry. It's a problem. And the people of, of Corinth were on Paul's hearts. He loved the people. He served the people. He had become connected with the people. Ministry without a heart for people is an absolute contradiction. It's kind of like a parent, you know. We, we all know uh, parents that have maybe like a 35-year-old son, maybe that still lives at home, or, you know, he's just still like milking off their parents. And, and we think to ourselves, man, what a bum, you know. What, why don't those parents tell that kid to get a life, get a job, move out, you know, get out of his parents' basement, you know, quit uh, chatting with people on chat rooms and, you know, get out of the house and get a life, you know. We think, what a bum. But the mom and dad, they just, they love that kid. They love that son. They still see that boy as an eight-pound baby. They still see a little eight-year-old kid running around. They still see the, the little ten-year-old uh, in the school pictures with his hair sticking up in the back. You know, that's what they see. You see a 35-year-old bum. But they see a child that has been written on their heart. And, you know, that's the heart that we ought to have for people in ministry. You know, I look at, at Peter, and, and I think, man, if Peter was on my staff, he would have been fired a long time ago. If Peter, if I was having to deal with Peter, he would have been done, right? I wouldn't have put up with him. 
But Jesus put up with Peter time and time and time again. And that's because Jesus prayed for for those that were with him. He prayed for those that were following him. And as ministers, you guys, you see, that's what Second Corinthians is all about. It's about ministry. And it doesn't just apply to me. It applies to you, too. Because we're all called to what? We're all called to ministry in some capacity or another. And if you don't know what that is yet, that's okay. But you need to start pursuing figuring that out. Because God's got something for you. And whatever that ministry is, it's about people. And people will drive you nuts. And that's what takes a lot of people out of ministry. So people will say, well, I used to be in ministry, but I can't stand people. And I just don't want to be in it anymore. I heard one guy say, I love ministry, but I hate people. And I can kind of relate to that in a sense, but ministry is people. And you guys, if we're going to be in ministry, which we all need to be and should be, and ministry is about the people, then what is it? Well, we need to start figuring out how we can dwell with people and love them and continue to be patient with them. And it comes by having them on your hearts. It comes by praying for them. And that's why Jesus didn't get rid of Peter, because Jesus spent time with the Father. Time and again we see Jesus getting up early in the morning before anybody else was awake, and He went and He sought the Lord. I'm pretty sure He was praying for Peter. He was praying, Lord, give me a heart for Peter. Give me a heart for these guys. It's difficult to continue to be patient with them. That's ministry. That's bottom line. That is the foundation of ministry that people are on our heart. And I love verse 3. Clearly, you are an epistle of Christ written not with ink, but by the Spirit of the living God. Paul says that we are You are, I am, an epistle. What's an epistle? It's a letter. Remember Paul's talking about letters of recommendation. And he's saying, look, you are my letters of recommendation. You are an epistle of Christ. You're that letter. We are, you guys, the letter of Christ. We are Christ's representatives. If you know Jesus Christ personally today, you are a representative of Christ. You're His letter. You and I are a living, breathing book of Jesus. I don't know if you ever thought about that. But look at that verse. You are an epistle of Christ. You are a living, breathing book of Jesus. And it makes me kind of think, well, what kind of book am I? Some of us are one-chapter books. We're one-chapter books. Very simple book. It's got one chapter in it, and it's, I once was lost, and now I'm found. That's the chapter. You're saved. And it's a great chapter. I mean, it doesn't get any better than that. It's about the fact that you were on a road leading to destruction. It's about the fact that you were headed straight to hell. And that Jesus saved you. He brought you into His kingdom. He loves you. I mean, it doesn't get any better than that. But you guys... The book shouldn't stop there. God wants to keep adding chapters to your book. And that will involve serving Him. That will involve ministry. There should be a chapter 2 and a chapter 3. 
And God should be continuing to add chapters throughout your life. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul tells us that we are His workmanship. We're His workmanship. It's a great word in the Greek. The word in the Greek is poema, from which we get our word poem. We are His poem. God is writing constantly, stanzas in our life, adding to it. But we have to allow Him to do that. We've got to allow Him to write chapter 2 and chapter 3. And they ought to be amazing chapters, and they will be if you let Him. God wants to use you in powerful ways. As it goes on to say there in Ephesians 2, we are His poema, we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what? To be saved and then go on living selfish, self-focused lives? No. It says we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works that He prepared beforehand that you might walk in them. That's awesome. Here is poem. He's created you for good works in these works He even prepared beforehand and you just got to walk in them. So what I'm trying to tell you guys is that God wants to write a book and He wants your name to be the title of it. And if you'll allow Him to, He'll, he'll make it happen. He'll write it. He'll publish it. He'll market it. It'll be amazing. You just let Him do it. You're His poem and God wants to add to your life. It's phenomenal. We are Christ's representatives. When was the last time Jesus added a chapter to your book? It was the last time. You've got to think about it. Was it 1986? If it was, that's a problem. It shouldn't be 1986. It should be 2006. It should be current. It should be up to date. It shouldn't be like that journal, you know, that a lot of you girls wrote in high school and maybe a little bit in college, and then you got married and you quit writing it. I don't know why that happens. My wife has all these, you know, boyfriends she had and boys she liked, and then there's nothing about me in her journal. Zero about me in there, you know. It's like what happened? Well, we got we got married, we got busy, you know. There's no need to write the journal. The journal was over and case closed, you know. I found my man or whatever. But that that shouldn't be that shouldn't be the book of our life. The book of our life should be continually being added to on a daily basis, and God wants to do that. So I promise we won't spend as much time on the rest of the points as we did that one. Or we'll be here all day. Um, but verses 4 through 6, Paul kind of now begins to say, look, you are my letters of recommendation. You are the fruit of my ministry. That's my validation. But so that he doesn't come across arrogant or as if it was about him, he goes on to say, it's not my ability, it's his sufficiency. It's about him. He gives us the ability to do it. Read with me verse 4. And we have such trust through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God, who also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Great verses. But Paul's saying, look, you are an epistle of Christ. You are the book of Jesus. He wants to add chapters to your life. He wants to use you. He wants you to be a minister. He wants you to have people on your heart. And here's the thing. 
you might think, well, look, I don't have any talents. I don't have any time. I don't have any desire. I don't. I just got all these weaknesses, Ryan. That you talk about serving a lot, but you don't understand who I am, where I've been, and what I'm going through. And you know what? I really don't. But I know this. I do know this is that whatever weakness you have, God wants to use that to bring glory to Himself. That is a major theme of this book of Second Corinthians is that God uses our weaknesses to demonstrate His strength. So quit hiding behind whatever weakness that is or whatever inability you have. You've got to quit hiding behind that. You've got to get out. You've got to take some risks. And you've got to allow God to use you. You might fall on your face a few times. You might look silly once in a while. But that's all part of it. Because that brings glory to Jesus too. As He says, look, I use the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. I mean, you guys, if God can use me, He can use you. You know, I look at my life, and I'm just an average guy. I'm not extremely intelligent. I don't have a lot of education. I don't have some pedigree of, you know, lots of educated men. I come from a long line of just regular Joes, just regular guys. And I come from a, a, a long line of people that didn't know Jesus. And... What am I doing in the ministry? Well, God wanted to use me. And I stepped up and I said, Lord, I want to be used. And God will do that in your life if you'll allow Him to. If you'll make yourself available. Don't worry about your weaknesses. Hey, you're not going to be all things to all men. You're not going to do everything. But you can do some things. And forget about your weaknesses. Forget about your pride that says you don't want people to know what those weaknesses are and step out and allow God to use your life to touch other lives and to add chapters to the book of Jesus that is you. Because you see, we're not sufficient of ourselves. That's what Paul says. It's not about me. I'm not sufficient of myself. But our sufficiency is from God. You remember... In Zechariah, Zerubbabel was called by God to rebuild the temple. It was a monumental task. It was huge. It was overwhelming. It was ridiculous. Zechariah is writing there about Zerubbabel because Zerubbabel and the rest of the children of Israel, they had just basically said, forget it. It's not going to happen. And they just went about building their own little lives. And you can read about that in Haggai. They said, you know what? The temple is way too big of a job, so we'll just build our own house. And they used their money, and they built their own houses, and they were living comfortably. And meanwhile, the temple was in ruins. Because you remember, the Babylonians had destroyed it. And now they re-entered the land, and they were called to rebuild the temple before they did anything else. But instead of doing that, they began to build their own houses. And you know what? I think some of us look at ministry as that. Just a huge pile of rubble. And we say, I can't do it. So I'm just going to build up my own little life over here. I'm going to build houses and buy cars and, you know, have hobbies and, you know, watch TV and all the things that we love to do. And I'm not saying I don't do those things because I do. I got cars and I have a house and, 
you know, I, I have hobbies, although they're becoming fewer and fewer, but, you know, I, I have all those things. I'm saying those are wrong. But if those things are at, as a substitute of ministry and of serving the Lord, then that's wrong. And so we look at the rubble, we say, forget it, and that's what Zerubbabel did. And God came to him and he said, Zerubbabel, I want you to look at that pile. And I want you to understand something. And he gave him a vision. And the vision was of a couple of olive trees that had the seven-branched candlestick that was in the temple. You know that candelabra that would be in the temple, that would light the temple, that would be a picture of, of Christ and that He's the light of the world. And the priests would have to continuously be refilling the oil in the lamps. It was a continuous job, daily. Trimming the wicks, putting oil in because they were, they were lit perpetually. And Zerubbabel looked at this lamp in the vision. He saw that it was hooked. There was a direct feed from the trees, the olive trees that produce oil, right into the lamp, to the seven-branch candelabra. And the, the lesson for him was simple, in that the oil speaks of the Holy Spirit. And God went on to tell Zerubbabel, look, it's not by might, it's not by power, but it's by my Holy Spirit. You see, Zerubbabel, just like that lamp that's hooked to the trees and is getting a perpetual feed of power, so you in ministry. And what God's called you to do, which for him it was rebuild that temple, and he's looking at the pile of rubble going, this is crazy. This will never happen. And whatever pile of rubble is in your life that you think, forget it, this isn't going to happen, God says to you today, it's not by might, it's not by power, it's by my Holy Spirit. And then he goes on to tell him, look at that pile of rubble. Because that pile of rubble will become a plane to you. And soon, you will be shouting grace, grace to it. As you look at the rebuilt temple, and you think, man, it is grace. It's about what God's done. It's not my sufficiency. It's not my ability. I don't even know how it happened. But that pile of rubble, it became a rebuilt temple. Because He allowed God to work through Him. Whatever it is in your life, you guys, that's holding you back, Remember, 2 Corinthians 3.5. It's not our sufficiency. It's His ability. It's what He can do. He's made us sufficient for the task. So we can't use that as an excuse. Well, the third thing, the third contrast that Paul brings up here is found in verses 7 through 13 in that it's lasting glory, not fading glory. Lasting glory, not fading glory. Read with me, starting in verse 7. But if the ministry of death, written and engraved on stones, was glorious, so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance, which glory was passing away, how will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? For if the ministry of condemnation had glory, the ministry of righteousness exceeds much more in glory. For even what was made glorious had no glory in this respect, because of the glory that excels. For if what is passing away was glorious, what remains is much more glorious. 
Therefore, since we have such hope, we use great boldness of speech. Unlike Moses, who put a veil over his face so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away. And so Paul, he compares and contrasts the new covenant with the old covenant, saying if if under the old covenant it was glorious, how much more under the, the new covenant? And under the new covenant, under the new way in which we approach God, it's a lasting glory, not a fading glory. What does that mean? Well, if you remember, those of you that come on Wednesday nights in our study through the book of Exodus, we saw Moses was able to go into the very presence of God. And when he would come out, his face would be glowing. Moses would go into the presence of God. He would he would come out to the people and his face would be shining. So when he came out, he veiled his face. Now, if all that we had was that story in Exodus, we would assume that the reason that Moses veiled his face is so that the people wouldn't be overwhelmed with this shining glory, right? That's the way it's taught most of the time. It's like, yeah, Moses was just shining so bright that people couldn't even look at it because it was the presence of God shining through him. Well, that is, that's not right because Paul gives us a commentary on that section of Exodus. And he tells us in verse 13 that it was not to keep the people from seeing the glory. It was to keep the people from seeing the glory fading. Moses didn't want the people to see the glory coming and going and then be discouraged. Because you see, that's the difference under the Old Covenant. Under the law, yeah, they could see the glory of God, but then it would fade. And it was a a fading glory. But now we have a lasting glory. As glorious an experience it was for Moses to fellowship with God in the Holy of Holies. We read about that. And don't you ever think, man, that would be awesome. The Shekinah glory to go into the presence of God, to be a priest, to be Moses, to be these guys. Isaiah, you know, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. The train of His robe filled the temple. We think that would be great. That would be awesome. But you guys, it was a passing glory. We actually have the opportunity today to experience the presence and glory of God, not occasionally, but constantly, continuously. The glory that faded from Moses' face and the reason that He veiled His face can remain in our lives as we fellowship with, with the Lord daily. We can go right into the presence of God. Right in. And that leads me to my fourth point, verses 14 through 16. In that it's open access, not closed doors. We don't have a fading glory. We actually have a lasting glory. We can experience God's presence not once in a while, but all the time. Because why? Read with me, starting in verse 14. But their minds were blinded. For until this day, the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament because the veil is taken away in Christ. But even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil lies on their heart. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. And so that veil that was on Moses' face, well, for those that don't know Christ, it's now put over their heart. It's now put over their ability to see God. There's a veil in the way 
of them being able to see God for who He is. But that veil can be removed if we simply, by faith, accept what Jesus did. And then now, it's open access to the Lord, not closed doors. You remember the temple? Well, there was a veil that separated the holy place from the holy of holies, from where God's presence was. And no average Joe off the street could just walk in and, and go into the Holy of Holies. You had to be a high priest, and you, and even at that, only once a year. But now God is saying to us, that veil has been torn. Remember when Jesus died on the cross? The veil was torn from top to bottom. And now God says to you this morning, and to me, you guys, listen. God says to you, that veil is removed in Christ. And it's open access to the Lord, not closed doors. You can go in and you can fellowship with God anytime. Hebrews chapter 4 says that access to God has been given to us through Christ. And listen, we can approach the throne of God with boldness. By His grace. Despite what you did yesterday, despite how you treated your wife last night, despite what you did at work the other day, despite the thought you had, despite the lie you told, whatever it is that's going on, God says to you, you can approach me, a holy God, based upon what my son did for you. It's open access. There's no closed doors. It's open to you to come to his throne and receive grace and mercy and forgiveness in your time of need. You guys, we need to take advantage of that. Are we? Are we taking advantage of that? Well, how do we approach God? You know, you talk about, okay, well, we're going to the throne of God. I mean, is that like somewhere I go? You know, is that an actual place? I mean, obviously not, right? So how do we approach God? Well, primarily through His Word. And I think that for many of us, and even for me a lot, the Bible's confusing. The Bible doesn't make sense. But I want you guys to know this morning, as verse 16 says, Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. The veil is removed, you guys. And so by faith, you need to get into the Word, and even when it's confusing, even when you don't understand it, you need to press on. You need to... Grab onto the things you do understand. I remember when I first got saved, there were a lot of things in the Bible that I didn't understand. It didn't make any sense to me at all. But I just knew that I had to keep reading and keep digesting it and, and grab onto the things I did understand. You guys, and the more that you do that, you'll connect the dots and things will begin to make sense. And God will speak to you. But you've got to, you guys, you've got to get into the Word. A chapter, a verse, ten verses, it doesn't matter. Just get into the Word and let God speak to you. Well, how much should I read? Well, read until God speaks to you. Read until God gives you something for that day. A promise to hold on to. An encouragement. An exhortation. There's going to be something in there that you can grab onto and you can say, that's for me today. The veil has been removed. I see a little piece of God. I see a glimpse of His glory. It makes sense to me. And we grab onto that and we approach God 
right at His very throne room through the Word. And we go to God in prayer. And we see Him for who He is. You guys, the veil's been removed. The Bible might be confusing to you. It might not make sense to you. But if you know Jesus, verse 16, nevertheless, when one does what? Turns to the Lord through Christ. Then the veil is removed. That's a promise for you. That God can be seen clearly. There's no more veil. There's no more barrier. It's a promise. By faith, you've got to accept that. You've got to say, God will speak to me. Don't just say, this book's confusing. It's for Bible scholars. It's for theologians. I just lost my place. And, you know, throw it out and say, I don't want to read that. I don't want to, you know, I I can't get anything out of it. I mean, first of all, if you're reading, you know, like the old King James, I would recommend maybe getting something that you can actually, you know, read in, in modern English, you know, but... But find a translation that that you can understand. You know, there's the New Living Translation. We have the New Testaments here. And I don't recommend like studying out of it. It's more of a paraphrase. But it's a great devotional reading of the Bible in plain English. Read it. Learn it. Know it. Believe it. Stand on it. The veil has been removed. Final point, verses 17 and 18. It's freedom, not bondage. It's freedom, not bondage. Now, the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty, or there is freedom. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. And so what is Paul saying here? Paul is saying that it's not about rules. It's not about regulations. It's not about the laws. He says there in verse 6 that we're ministers of what? The new covenant. Not of the letter. The letter speaks of the law. Not of the letter of the law, but of the spirit. Because the letter does what? It kills. People say, well, how can you say that? That was God's word. That's the letter of the law. Yes. But the letter of the law, it brought death. That was its intended purpose, was to bring death, to show you that you needed Jesus. It was to indict you. Like Paul said, if it wasn't for the law, I would not have known that I was a sinner. The law drives us to Christ. But that's what it has to do. If you just try to keep the law, it brings death. The law is like a mirror. It can reveal your blemishes. It can show you what you need to do to your face. It can show you the dirt. It can show you the the zits. It can show you that your teeth need to be brushed. It can show you that you have food in your mustache. You know, it can show you that you've got way too much makeup on. You know, whatever. That's what the mirror can do. But the mirror can't go any further than that. The mirror can't help you to clean yourself up. It can only reveal. Then you've got to apply the water and the soap. And that's what God wants to do for you through Christ. The law, you guys, we cannot come to God through the law. We can't become righteous through the law. The law can only show us that we're sinners. Jesus makes us righteous. 
focus on Jesus. The law magnifies our sin. Jesus justifies the sinner. Just as if you never sinned. He forgives you. He who knew no sin was made to be sin with our sin that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Guys, it's not about keeping the law. Religion always puts people into bondage. That's what people want to do. They, they, they want to approach God in their own merit, in their own strength, and it's about religion, right? It's about rules. It's about regulations. It's about doing things for God. It's about God accepting you because you're such a good person. And it puts you into bondage. It binds you up. Just talk to people. Talk to Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses and, and even uh, Catholics a lot of times as it's about what they can do for God. And, and it's about rules and it's about going to the priest and it's about Hail Marys. It's about all these things that they're doing for God. And God says, no, it's not about that. It's not about what you can do for me. You've got to get that through your head. You've got to understand that. It's about what Jesus did. Jesus sets us free. You guys, that's the message that we have to bring to the world. We don't have a message of, you know, being a good person or having some moral standard. We have a message of hope and of forgiveness and of grace. And the question that I have for you this morning is what kind of relationship do you have with God? Is it a legalistic relationship? Is it a religious relationship? Is it the relationship that many of the cults and false religions of this world have? And that is that you're trying to reach to God by your own merit. And they come to your door and they say, hey, if you'll just do A, B, C, all the way to Z, God will accept you. And I say, forget it. I can't do it. And I heard that my whole life. I heard, just do this and this and this. And I just thought, hey, forget it. God's way too difficult for me to find. I'll never find Him, so I don't really care. But when I heard that God found me, and He sought me, and He wants a relationship with me, not based on my performance, but based upon what He did on the cross, you guys, that's hope. That's the message that we have. We've got to get out of this performance-based religious nonsense. What kind of relationship do you have with God? Is it legalistic? If it is, it doesn't have to be. Is it performance-based or is it position-based? If it's performance-based, you're going to be focused on rules and regulations. You're going to be all bound up with what other people are doing. You see what they said and what they did and what they watched and what they drink and where they go. And it's all about what they did and what they're doing and who they are with. And, and man, you just go into an absolute frenzy. Guys, forget what other people are doing. It doesn't matter. Hey, if God's shown you that you, you aren't supposed to drink wine or drink a beer, then don't do it. God shows you you're not supposed to go to the movies or have a TV or whatever, don't do it. Don't worry about what other people are doing. Don't worry about what I'm doing. Some people would probably be stumbled. I've got a big TV. I've got a big TV. I like sports. Some people wouldn't like that. Hey, don't worry about that. It's not about me. I don't have a conviction about that. Some people, you know, get all freaked out about, you know, those little things. And God says, hey, that doesn't matter. It's not about that. It's not about rules and regulations. 
not performance-based. If it's position, positionally-based, then it's going to be about grace and forgiveness. It's going to be about the cross, man. And that's what it's all about. That's why Paul said what? I preach to you nothing but Jesus Christ and His list of rules and regulations. No. I preach to you Jesus Christ and my little pet peeve doctrines. No. I preach to you Jesus Christ and the things that I think you should be doing. No. I preach Jesus Christ and Him crucified. End of story. Let Jesus take care of the rest. Jesus will clean you up, you guys. I don't need to do that. And you don't need to do that for me. Jesus will do it. He'll clean out the stuff He doesn't want in your life. He'll bring convictions into your life. We don't need to do that for other people. That's why here, we don't do a whole lot of that. Not into that. Not into, you know, what people are doing or what they said or where they're going. Hey, you live your life. You live it for Jesus. And He'll take care of the rest. He'll work in you. It's not performance-based, you guys. It's positionally based upon the cross. Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Romans 5.8 Even while we were still sinners, Jesus died for us. That is awesome. While you were still a sinner, He didn't wait for you to clean up your act. He died for you while you were still a sinner. So why is it that we think now we've got to, based on our performance, come to God? It was never about your performance before. So why would it be about your performance now? It isn't. It's nothing to do with that. It's about Jesus. Guys, we're not changed by a program, by a practice, by a procedure. We're changed by a person. Jesus Christ, who died in your place. It's about grace. You guys, we need to understand grace in a real powerful way. Paul told Timothy, be strong in grace. He said, stand in grace. Peter said, grow in grace. Because we need grace. We need to experience it, and we need to extend it to others. We've got to understand grace. We've got to know it. We've got to cling to it. Oh, well, pastor, if, if you get into that grace stuff, I mean, people are going to start just doing whatever they want. No, they won't. The Bible says exactly the opposite. The Bible says when you know God's grace, when you know the love of God, it brings you to repentance. That brings holiness. The love of God brings holiness. Because now I see, wait, I'm not doing it because I have to. I'm doing it because I can. I'm doing it because He's made it available to me. I'm doing it because I don't want to disappoint the Lord. That's the difference, you guys. That's the difference between legalism and freedom in Christ. Legalism says, do these things and God will accept you. Grace and freedom in Christ says, do these things because you can, because you get to, because He loves you. See? I want to close with a story. Mike Nelson, the pastor who used to teach at the Bible college, he pastored a large church in Tennessee. He had two small boys, David and Jonathan. And he was teaching the little one, Jonathan, that when he misbehaved and they would punish him, they would say, look, we punish you because we love you. And we want you to know something, Jonathan. We want you to know that even when you're bad, we love you. We love you even when you're bad. Well, at the same time, Mike was, was playing in a church basketball league. 
big league, bunch of different churches. And every year, they would finish second to First Baptist Church. Every year. Got really tired of that. And finally, the year came. They had this great team. Four of their starters were college, ex-college basketball players, and the fifth starter was the best player on the team. He didn't even play college ball, but he was the best player. And Mike was on the team. He had played college basketball, and they were undefeated. Championship game against First Baptist. Mike's bringing the ball up the court, and the, the defender comes and just runs right into him. Ball goes flying. They both go flying. And he said, as I hit the ground, I prepared myself that he might call the foul on the other guy or on me. He said, because the refs, you know, in those kind of leagues are terrible. He said, you know, I, I realized, look, he might call the foul on me, and I was preparing myself mentally for that. He said, but what I didn't prepare myself for was that he wouldn't call a foul at all. And I don't know how much you guys know about basketball, but when two people run into each other on the court, there's a foul somewhere. Somebody committed a foul. And typically, it's not the guy with the ball unless the other guy was planted. So if the defender comes running at you and runs you over, that's a foul on him. But he gets up, no foul. So he glares at the ref, gives him a look, and the ref teed him up. Technical foul. So he goes ballistic goes absolutely nuts. He said, I called him everything but wonderful. Cussed him up one side and down the other. In fact, the elders of the church had to come out and had to restrain him. This was a packed house. There were a thousand people from his church, Grace Chapel, on one side. A thousand people from First Baptist on the other side. These were huge churches. The place was packed. Cussing the ref out one side and down the other. His elders come out. They drag him off the court. He is still screaming obscenities at the ref. So finally the ref tosses him out of the game. He said at that moment, it occurred to him that there were 2,000 people watching. At that moment, he said, I realized a thousand of my own congregation was watching me. He said, he went out into the hall and he slumped down and he wept. And he said to the Lord, God, when am I going to quit embarrassing you? When, when will it end? And he said his son, Jonathan, came out into the hall and said, Daddy, did, did you, um, are you crying because Jim ripped your shirt? said, no, Johnny, that's not why I'm crying. I'm crying because I hate crying in front of people. I, always, I, I knew I, I should not have told this story. He said, no, Johnny, your daddy's crying because he's a bad man. And without missing a beat, Jonathan replied, that's okay, Daddy. I love you even when you're bad. Guys, that's God's grace. That's what it's all about.
He loves us even when we're bad. He loves you guys. Let's stand and pray.